You're listening to the Sermon Podcast of Covenant Baptist Church in Arden, North Carolina. To learn more about us, visit covbap.org. Now, today's sermon. Well, the Bible is a book about God's plan to redeem a people through Jesus Christ. The Bible is a book about God's plan to redeem a people through Jesus Christ, a people from every tribe, in every language, in every nation. Always good to keep that in mind. Always. We're continuing on this morning in our series through Paul's letter to the Romans. We're in Romans chapter 11. And in God's providence, there are things going on in the world. You know the things of which I speak. There is turmoil and suffering and war in Israel, even as we gather this morning. These things are in the front of many people's minds. Maybe they're on your mind today. We trust the Lord with the timing of world events, and we trust the Lord with the timing of this sermon series in this local church and the fact that we have come to Romans 11 at such a time as now. Now, whenever we are making our way through an epistle, a letter, the sermons will inevitably be connected to one another because the epistles are written in such a way, Romans in particular is written in such a way, where Paul lays out a very logical, cohesive flow of thought. And so... This sermon today will inevitably be connected to the sermon from last Sunday and will depend heavily as well on the sermon next Sunday, should the Lord give us that. In other words, next week's message will serve in many ways as a conclusion to much of what we even consider this morning. So with all that by way of brief introduction, open your Bibles to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. 11. We're going to be looking today at verses 11 through 24, but while we're turning and to try to help us make some connections, I'm going to make some comments about Romans 11, 1 to 10. Beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, Paul, as he had done repeatedly, as he has done repeatedly throughout the letter, he anticipates an objection. In light of everything that he's been writing, has God rejected his people? Meaning, pointedly, the Israelites. Has God rejected his people? Has Israel been utterly forsaken by God? They are not, many of them, trusting the Christ. This calls a number of things into question, but Paul's answer, as he has been helping us see from the beginning of Romans 9, is that God in no way has forsaken his people. By no means has he done so. God is saving all of the children of promise. There are Israelites who have been saved, who are being saved, and who will be saved. And Paul refers to himself in the early verses of Romans 11 to say, hey guys, I am exhibit A. I am a genuine Israelite. I'm a descendant of Abraham and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, and God has saved me. Paul then makes the assertion in verse 2, of Romans 11, that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And then Paul spends effectively through verse 32 of Romans 11, grounding that assertion, demonstrating that it's true. God is saving all of the children of promise. And by all, we mean all. Paul then says, you remember what Elijah said to God about his fellow Israelites? Paul's acknowledging, yeah, it doesn't look good right now in terms of how things are going in Israel. They're rejecting Jesus, all of these things. But do you remember what Elijah said about his fellow Israelites? 1 Kings 19, right? Lord, these people are wicked. They've killed your prophets. They've destroyed your altars. They have profaned your places of worship, and I alone am left. I'm the only faithful one. And they're trying to kill me. Elijah, the iconic prophet appealed to God against his fellow Israelites. From his perspective, there were none left among the faithful. 
But how did God respond, says Paul? What did God say to Elijah? God's answer was, I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In other words, I'm saving my people. I am keeping them. They are my 7,000. Seven, you know, by the cube of ten. A vast multitude, right? I'm saving this great multitude for myself. In other words, Elijah, you're mistaken. You think you're the only one, but you're not. In verses 5 and 6, Paul pulls it together. Just like it was then, so it is now. And so it will continue to be. God is saving a remnant of Israel. He has not rejected his people. This remnant is chosen by grace, he says. There's no merit here. Adoption as God's son or God's daughter has nothing to do with our worthiness. God's people are the blessed recipients of the gracious gift of God's salvation. In verse 7, Paul asks, what then? What shall we say to all this? And he tells us that Israel, on the whole, by and large, failed to obtain what it was seeking. Now, it's clear in the context that what Israel was seeking was salvation through righteousness. Righteousness that they would achieve under the law. They didn't attain righteousness. Paul says the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. The elect were given righteousness through faith in Christ. The rest were hardened, though. Regarding this hardening in verses 8 to 10, Paul references Isaiah and Moses and David, effectively to say that God did not give a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear the promises regarding Jesus to the entire nation of Israel. This is why many Israelites had rejected God's Messiah. They had not believed God's promises that would be realized through him, and they had stumbled over the stumbling stone. So that brings us to Romans 11, verse 11. Let's look now to the text. Listen as I read. This is the word of God. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they might fall? By no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, I am speaking to you Gentiles. Inasmuch then as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off and you although a wild olive shoot were grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing root of the olive tree, do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember, it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief, but you stand fast. Through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God, severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has the power to graft them in again. For if you were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, the natural branches, 
be grafted back in to their own olive tree. Amen. We thank the Lord for his word today and every day. My plan for the rest of our time this morning is to give this message in four parts. Part one will be God's purposes through Israel's stumbling. I'll reiterate all of this. Part two will be a call to humility and gratitude. Part three, I want to make some comments regarding the nation state of Israel and the war that's going on. And then part four will be our conclusion. So we'll begin with part one. God's purposes through Israel's stumbling. God's purposes through Israel's stumbling. We're going to look at verses 11 through 16 most pointedly. At the outset, keep in mind that when Paul writes about Israelites, he sometimes refers to the nation as a whole and at other times refers to individuals within the nation. This has been clear from the beginning of Romans chapter 9. It was clear in our text last week, and it will be clear today. So just keep that in mind. Verse 11, you can put your eyes there. In light of what he's written, Paul asks, did Israel stumble in order that they might fall? Did they stumble over effectively the gospel, over the Christ, over righteousness given to sinners? Did they stumble over all of this in order that they might just be lost forever? His answer is the familiar one. By no means is that what's going on. Rather, he says, through their trespass. And what trespass is that? Seeking to establish their own righteousness under the law, and rejecting, not submitting to the righteousness of God that is given by faith in Christ. That's the trespass, right? Rather, says Paul, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles so as to make Israel jealous. Now, there is a lot there in that verse. The stumbling of Israel on the whole was for the salvation of the Gentiles. One. Two, and then in the plan of God, the salvation of the Gentiles is for the ongoing salvation of a remnant of Israel. Both are true. On the stumbling of Israel resulting in the salvation of the Gentiles, this is true in two ways. Perhaps more, but for our purposes today, two. First, we certainly would say biblically that it was the unbelief of Israel, that resulted in the crucifixion of Jesus. It was the unbelief, most pointedly even, of Jewish religious leaders, the chief priests, that resulted in them saying, that led them to say to Pilate, we have no king but Caesar, John 19, 15. And to say, and to incite a mob to say, Crucify him. That's true. That's one sense in which the stumbling of Israel led to the salvation of the Gentiles, the salvation of everyone, for that matter. But then secondly, more broadly, and what Paul is really driving at here in Romans 11, is that it was always God's plan for the gospel to go to the nations in the aftermath of Israel's ongoing unbelief. Go to the highways and byways and invite everybody in, right? You know the parable. This had always been God's design to save the nations through the nation of, of Israel. Now, as to the salvation of the Gentiles making Israel jealous, we can understand this well enough. When the Israelites would see the nations, the peoples of the world, whom they didn't have the best relationship with. They despised the nations. They saw the nations rightly as unclean. And so when the Israelites would see these people, despised and unclean as they were, receiving God's favor through faith in Jesus of Nazareth, it would affect them. They would be grieved and stirred and seek reconciliation. Seeing the nations come to faith and receive the grace of God 
would be a means the Lord would use to bring many Israelites to faith in Jesus. It would be a means of bringing many Israelites to repentance. This continues on to today. Paul certainly in all of this has in mind the testimony of Moses and Isaiah. You can look back up to chapter 10 and verses 19 and 20. Paul writes there, but I ask, did Israel not understand how this would go? Moses says this, Deuteronomy 32, 21, God speaks through Moses to Israel and says, I will make you jealous of those who are not a nation. With a foolish nation, I will make you angry. Verse 20, Paul cites Isaiah from chapter 65 and verse 1. Isaiah is so bold to say, I have been found by those who didn't seek me. And I've shown myself to those who did not ask for me. This is the Lord's plan that he would give righteousness to people who were not seeking him and were not seeking for it. And in doing that, he would make the people of Israel jealous in such a way that he would continue to save a remnant of them. Put your eyes now on verse 12 of chapter 11. Paul had said that the stumbling of the Jews resulted in the salvation of the Gentiles. Now, because we're all sinners, it would be very possible for Gentiles to conclude that if the ruin of the Jews is for their good, then maybe somehow the restoration of the Jews would be to their detriment. And Paul goes ahead and just blows that up. None of that nonsense here, right? He says it. You can see it. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, that's redemptive language. If their failure means riches for the Gentiles, redemption, right? How much more will their full inclusion, literally their fullness, mean? In other words, this is really important. The best thing to advance the salvation of Gentiles is that the gospel would go forth amongst the Jews and that the grace of God would abound in their salvation. This is not hard to understand. Verses 13 and 14. Let's look at these briefly. Paul now is going to address Gentiles directly. He acknowledges that he is an apostle appointed for the sake of the Gentiles. And then he says that a goal of his ministry is to see the salvation of many Gentiles in order that some of his fellow Jews might be saved. You can see how this works together. Again, the salvation of Gentiles and the salvation of Jews go together. They are intimately connected in the plan of God. They are in no way opposed to each other. If you hear people talking like that, run away. Paul wanted to see more Gentiles receive Christ so that the remnant of Israel might be saved. Look now to verse 15. Paul writes there, For if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? This is an argument from the lesser to the greater. If this is true, how much more so, right? If the rejection of the gospel on the part of many Jews and their resulting rejection of God because they had rejected the Christ, if their rejection resulted in the salvation of many Gentiles, the complete salvation of the Jewish remnant, all of the elect of God, the complete salvation of that Jewish remnant would mean something even more wonderful. Verse 16, Paul here appeals to the beginning of the Israelite people. He's appealing to the promise of God made pointedly to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. If the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul is continuing to demonstrate that it has never been God's plan 
that the whole of the Israelite people would be rejected. He employs these two images, these two analogies to drive that home. First fruits and the rest of a batch of dough, and then a tree and its roots. Those are images we can understand. The Lord had made promises. He had called Abraham out of paganism. And he had made promises to him and Isaac and Jacob. They were children of promise. They were set apart by God. And the Lord would save a remnant of the people of Israel who would have the faith of Abraham. Hear that. He would save a remnant of the people of Israel who would have the faith of Abraham and would thereby be united to the living vine, who is Christ. All of that by way of part one. Part two, a call to humility and gratitude. A call to humility and gratitude. We're going to look at verses 17 through 24. Now, this is aimed very clearly in the context at the Gentiles in the church of Rome. You remember that this congregation is comprised of both Jew and Gentile. So Paul is speaking pointedly to Gentiles in this section. And the vast majority of us sitting here this morning are Gentile believers. Verses 17 and 18. Paul, picking up on this analogy of the tree, right? The tree representative of God's people. But if some of the branches, if some of the Israelites were broken off of the tree of God's people, right? And you, Gentiles, even though you were not a part of the tree, were grafted in and now share in the richness of that tree. What's the takeaway? If all that's true, you ought not be arrogant toward Jewish men and women. You ought not be arrogant toward Jewish people in the congregation. Paul says, remember, look at the end of verse 18, the last sentence. If you are arrogant, remember, it is not you who support the root but the root that supports you. I mean, what Paul is saying here is Gentile Christian, if you're arrogant toward your Jewish friends, your Jewish brothers and sisters, but in particular Jewish unbelieving people, if you are arrogant toward them, you must remember that you are only saved because of them. Salvation is of the Lord. Amen. And Salvation is of the Jews. First of all, the Christ came through them and from them. When he came, to whom did he come? To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The gospel was first preached to whom? The first Christians were Jews. And the church was founded by Jewish apostles. So Paul's word, my word, Gentile believers, most of us here at CBC, don't ever forget these things. Don't ever forget that God in his grace has grafted us in to the natural branch. We're going to think more about the privilege that that is. Whenever people insinuate that a church like ours, with doctrine like ours, we somehow don't love and value Israel, it's absurd. Nothing could be further from the truth. Put your eyes on verse 19. We'll read into 20 here. Then you will say, Branches were broken off so that I might be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. To Paul, again, speaking to Gentiles, his word to them. If you say, well, the Jews were broken off of the tree, he's like, that's true. But they were broken off for this reason. 
unbelief. They were broken off because they had sought to establish their own righteousness. They were broken off because they had not trusted the Messiah. You should not become puffed up with pride, Gentile believer, regarding anything pertaining to you. As for you, God has grafted you in by grace, through faith in Christ. It's not because of some inherent superiority that you possess. It's not because you're worthy in some way that Israelites were not worthy. It's not because you're better. It's not because you're more tender-hearted. God has done this. So Paul is warning all of us who are Gentile believers to beware of pride. The kind of pride that he's warning about is thinking that we are something inherently. The kind of pride he's warning us about is self-confidence when it comes to salvation. It sounds familiar. He has written so much about this through the letter. Do not become puffed up in any way. You're a debtor to grace. You're a debtor to mercy. The faith you have, you didn't generate it. God gave it to you. And the nature of our faith is to receive a righteousness that we don't have and could never achieve. Be humble. That's the exhortation. Verse 21, Paul goes on. He says, make no mistake, effectively, right? Make no mistake. God didn't spare Israelites. He didn't spare the natural branches because they trusted in themselves. He didn't spare the natural branches who didn't trust Christ. And if that's true for them, how much more so would that be true for you? Then there's verse 22. This one is a banger. Put your eyes on it. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Paul exhorts the Gentiles in the church of Rome to consider God's kindness and God's severity. God's severity toward those who have not trusted Jesus and his kindness toward them as those who had been brought to faith in Christ. Then he adds, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Strong words. So the million-dollar question is this. What is it to continue in God's kindness? What's that mean? It's pretty simple. I think you know the answer. To continue in God's kindness is to continue to trust in Jesus Christ. It is to continue to accept, receive, and rest in Christ alone. To accept, receive, and rest in Christ alone for everything. Righteousness, forgiveness of sin, transformation of life, bodily resurrection, and life forever. Christ for all of that. By virtue, not of our merit, but on account of God's grace. That's the kind of God he is. Paul uses strong words to the Gentiles of the church of Rome. This is his exhortation. Do not look to yourselves. Do not think that you are something. Do not look to your worthiness or your merit. Do not thereby look down on others. Put absolutely no confidence in the flesh. Continue in God's kindness, beloved. And what that means is to continue to look away from yourself and to cast your hope and to cast your soul on Christ alone. That's his exhortation. Verse 23 and 24. Paul then says of the currently unbelieving Jews that if they don't continue in their unbelief, God will graft them back in. If they believe in Jesus, 
If they turn from themselves to Christ and trust him, God will graft them back into the tree of his people. Again, notice this. Notice that faith in Jesus is the thing. Do you see that? That's the linchpin. It's all about Christ, his work and merits and his righteousness. It's all about whether or not a person trusts him, whether or not a person is found in him. So if they don't continue in their unbelief, God will graft them back in. Notice the last phrase of verse 23. For God has the power to do that. You bet he does. Verse 24, for if you, Gentiles, were cut from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted, contrary to nature, into a cultivated olive tree, i.e., the olive tree that God had established through the promises made to Abraham, right? How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? If God saved you, Gentile, brothers and sisters, how much easier is it for him to save currently unbelieving Jews? It's a good word. Thus concludes part two. We now move to part three. I don't have a clever heading here. I want to speak with you regarding the nation state of Israel and the war going on. It seems negligent at best to not speak to this issue from this kind of passage, Romans 11, in light of everything that's going on. So in light of the text, in light of world events, what can we say? How can we, how should we, as believers here at Covenant Baptist Church, talk about these things with people that we know? Maybe other Christians from other churches or friends that we have out of the area. Maybe some of this will be helpful. First, we can speak to the objective nature of the moral evil, the terrorist attacks, the destruction of life and property. We can speak to the horror and the objective wickedness of those events. We should. We must. We can speak to the grievous and heinous nature of the violence committed. And so we grieve and we lament. And we call all of that what it is. That's a pretty low bar. If we can't say those things, we need to have another conversation, right? But then we pray for people on both sides of this equation. Meaning we pray for Israelites who have been harmed, wronged, sinned against. And we pray for Muslim terrorists. We pray for both. We pursue justice for all men. This is a very, very freighted and complicated subject in our day, and that's sad. Pursuing justice for all men. For all people made in the image of God, we do that. Not just for any particular people group. When people made in God's image have been wronged according to God's moral law, we pursue justice for them. Inasmuch as we're able, we pursue it and we advocate for it. That might be Israel in one case, the nation state that is Israel post-1948. It might be that in one case. It might be Ukraine in another. It might be Muslims or Hindus or Buddhists from any number of countries in another. you realize that the, the nation state of Israel post-1948 is not the same thing as Israel under the Old Covenant. That is important for our understanding. The Old Covenant, right? The covenants made with Abraham through Moses and with David that constituted Israel, the Old Covenant, God's unique and special people in whom and through whom he had very unique purposes for them and the whole world. Israel, as established under the Old Covenant, ceased to exist not many decades after Christ came at the hands of the Romans. Now, don't get it 
twisted. Don't get it confused. God has accomplished and continues to accomplish his wonderful purposes in and through Israel. We should talk like that. He has accomplished and continues to accomplish his wonderful purposes in and through Israel. To establish a people through Abraham, to make them numerous, to give them a land, to give them the law, to institute the priesthood and the sacrificial system and other ordinances, to establish the line of the Davidic kings. All of this to bring the Christ and point to the Christ who would save Israel and who would save the entire world, the nations. So what is the church's mission as it pertains to all of this? That's a good question to ask. What's the church's mission? Or maybe to make it pointed, I'm not even trying to be provocative, but what is the church's mission with regard to an Israelite on the one hand or a Muslim terrorist on the other? It's the same mission. We preach first God's law. We preach God in his being. Here is who he is. The one who never got started the one who always has been, the one who spoke all things into existence, the one who made you and me in his image, the one who gave us a law that is the greatest standard of righteousness that the world has ever known. And he tells us that he requires us to keep that law, not in some external sense only, but at the level of the spirit. And you, whether you're an Israelite or a Muslim terrorist or anybody in between, you are undone by that standard, just like I am undone by that standard. We say that. And then we herald the Savior. We preach Jesus for sinners. We say, we ask, in light of everything I just said, have you considered him? Have you heard of him? Have you considered the one who is Israel's greater son? The one who is the true and better Israel? The one who is the point of everything? God was doing and continues to do in and through this nation. Have you considered him? Have you thought about how he is the fulfillment of every single promise that God has ever made? Have you heard how he is going to usher us into the new heavens and the new earth? You heard. Have you heard about the fact that he will be perfectly just in doing that because he has dealt with our sin? Have you heard about how he endured that law I just told you about? He endured the curse of that law for you and for me. You heard about that. The penalty that lawbreakers deserve, he took it. That righteousness that we were just talking about, that he requires, that God requires, did you know? that Christ has provided it for us. He did it. He fulfilled the law at the level of the Spirit. Have you heard about how he was buried and how he laid in a tomb and how he rose again and how he lives still? Have you heard about how he conquered death and conquered the evil one, how he descended into hell to liberate and has set God's people free. Have you heard of him, and have you considered him? So friend, trust him. Believe in him. Cast your hope, cast your soul, cast it all upon him and him alone, and you will never be put to shame. That is the mission. We preach that from the rooftop to everyone who would care to hear it. And we trust the Lord that he is saving all of his people. That he is saving a people from the nations, 
and that the fullness of the remnant of Israel will be brought to faith. And then we pillow our heads at night, knowing that our God is good, that he's faithful, and that he's a redeemer. Part four. This is our conclusion. It is an unspeakable privilege to be grafted into the one people of God. Amen? It is an unspeakable privilege to be grafted into the one people of God. I'm looking across a room, a lot of backgrounds, a lot of different experiences, different countries, different ethnicities, different lots of things are different about us. And yet we're all here. Why? Because of the grace and the mercy of the Lord. Grafted together into the one people of God. What an unspeakable privilege. One people, you realize, has always been God's plan. One people comprised of Jews and Gentiles. You don't have to take my word for it. Listen to Isaiah. Isaiah wrote about a a man who would come and be the suffering servant of the Lord. And that's what these words are about. But listen, behold, my servant, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. Praise be to his name. He will faithfully bring forth justice. He will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. You hear the scope of this. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you, my servant. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon and from the prison those who sit in darkness. This is the Lord's plan. You might remember Luke chapter 2 when Jesus is eight days old and he's brought to the temple to be circumcised. You might remember a man whose name was Simeon. Let me just read a little bit to you about him. Now, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit to the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God. And said, what did he say, brother? I'm happy to read it to you. Listen to these words. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory for your people, Israel. Consider the language of Ephesians Chapter 2. This will slap after what we've just been thinking about. This will hit. Beginning in verse 11. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. 
and he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to you who were near. For through him, we both, Jew and Gentile, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. One people. Jew and Gentile, has always been the plan. We, all of us who sit here this morning, have all received a righteousness that we were not seeking. Amen, someone. Why is that? Because Jesus came to seek and save the lost. As we love to say, he is the seeker. We are the found. You remember Luke chapter 19? Man named Zacchaeus. You remember that account? Jesus is passing through Jericho. We're told about Zacchaeus, and we're told he is a chief tax collector. In other words, he is a big sinner. He's a bad one. Ain't no respectable sins about this man, right? This This is bad. He was seeking, though, to see who Jesus was. He was short in stature, we're told, so he had to run ahead of the crowd and climb up into a tree so that he could see. Jesus, in the midst of all of the clear fanfare that's going on, what does Jesus do? He makes a direct approach to that tree where little short Zacchaeus is hanging out up there, and he speaks to him, calls to him. He says, Zacchaeus, hurry up and come down, for I must stay at your house today. What a privilege, what grace, what mercy. And Zacchaeus, for his part, receives Jesus joyfully, the text says. The crowd, of course, doesn't like it. They comment about how this man is a sinner. And Jesus is going to be his guest today. Jesus is going to hang out at his his house today. And in the aftermath of all this, Having received Jesus joyfully, Zacchaeus pledges to give half the wealth he'd accumulated to the poor and to make right all the ways that he had defrauded people. Pretty cool. It's incredible, the transformation of life that happens when a person receives Christ in joy, is it not? But notice the one happens before the other. But what does Jesus say about this whole thing? Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and save the lost. This is our savior. You remember the woman of the city in Luke chapter seven. Jesus is dining at the house of a Pharisee named Simon. A woman of the city who was a sinner, quote unquote, learned that Jesus was there. You know the account. She comes with, an alabaster flask of ointment, got nothing, nothing to offer. She knows her condition, right? We're not celebrating her sin. What we celebrate, just as an aside, what we're celebrating is the fact that she knew she had no righteousness and was a debtor to grace and mercy. That's the point. She comes casting herself effectively upon Christ, worshiping him. Simon the Pharisee doesn't approve. Jesus knew what kind of woman this is. He wouldn't be having this. And Jesus then tells a parable to illustrate that a person who has been forgiven much loves much and is full of gratitude. And he rebukes Simon, the Pharisee. But then what does he say to the woman? What's his word to her? It's a good word. To the woman who had no righteousness, who came casting herself upon his grace and mercy, he looks at her and he says, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. So it is with all the saints of God from all time. We have received a righteousness that we were not pursuing and that we could never achieve. And that will change a person's heart. This nonsense, like, oh, well, you know, just 
you guys wax eloquent about justification and it might not change somebody. Get out of here with that. Change your life. So I ask you, is your soul thirsty today? You thirsty this morning? Our God is so good. He says, come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Friend, does your soul hunger for righteousness this morning? A righteousness that you know you don't have. Come to the one who is the end of the law for righteousness. Is your soul weary? Are you weighed down? Come to the one, the only one, who could carry that burden and who can give you rest. Beloved, taste and see that the Lord is good and that Christ is a Savior and that he is a friend of sinners. It is a privilege to be grafted into the one people of God of all time. And now, since Jesus has come, the mission of the church is to preach him to everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. And then we all, Jew and Gentile alike at the end of this thing, will be around the throne of God. We all. And we'll be there praising the one who's seated on that throne, praising the lamb who was slain. And we all, Jew and Gentile, when we're there with the Lord, with each other, praising him, we're all going to be wearing the same thing. We will be wearing robes that have been given to us, and we will be wearing robes that have been washed and made white in the blood of the Lamb. And it will be magnificent, beyond our comprehension. What a privilege it is to be grafted in, to be ransomed, to be redeemed, to be forgiven, to be declared just because Christ is just. May our hearts be humble and may our hearts be filled with gratitude.